Okay, we're uh, we're back at it. Many guys who aren't from Oklahoma, Bernie, you have no idea. We don't like them. It's personal. How about them Cowboys? Yeah. So we won Oklahoma, and it was state, and it was state. We are back at it. Welcome back to another edition of the Pistols Firing Podcast. I'm Carson Cunningham, joined as always by Colby Powell. And Colby, you know, breaking news typically happens after we're done recording on the day. That happened last week with Alan Bowman's announcement that he was returning to Oklahoma State. But we've got a bombshell as we're uh, setting up here right now. Nick Saban is retiring. How are you doing? And uh, are you in total shock like myself? Uh, Yeah, I'm doing great. Um, Yeah, very surprising. Right before I logged on here, I checked my phone. Group text is blowing up. Nick Saban retiring. I assumed somebody um, had, had gotten got by the internet. So I went to further investigate Nick Saban retiring. I just, I don't know, for whatever reason, I thought that he was going to go. Um, I thought he might be coaching on his deathbed. I don't know. Let's see how old Nick, Nick Saban was 72 years old. I mean, he's, he struck me as the kind of guy that was going to coach until 80. So yeah, very surprised to see him go. Um, a lot of speculation about who might take over at what is an elite of the elite of the elite college football job. So yeah, massive news. Uh, for once, breaking right before we started recording instead of right after. Yeah, for once, um, I guess, you know, Oklahoma State did have Alabama on their future schedules. We were kind of wondering if um, Nick Saban would be coming to town, but apparently not. Uh, what year was that? I'm looking at their future schedules. I'm up to 2027. Yeah, top of my head. Um, I thought it was in like the 28, 2028 is what I got here. Okay, yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. And is it, is it a home and home? I don't remember. I think it is a home and home. Yeah, it would make sense for it to be a home and home. Twenty nine, so. they go. Yeah, it's home and home. They go to Bama in twenty nine. Okay, so I mean that's uh, five, six years out. Uh, I mean, obviously this is like crazy rabbit hole speculation now, but we don't know who the coach of Oklahoma State is going to be at that time. Mike Gundy said that he doesn't want to coach until he's an old man, and who knows what the state of Alabama's program will be, whether the next guy will come in and be successful. There are no guarantees in college football. So, I mean, this is a massive, massive day. St. Nick is uh, hes no longer coming to town. Well, and I think it also speaks to how much college football has changed. I mean, I think he... He, I mean, he has starting players for him entering the portal. Um, I, I just think that it's so difficult to be a college head football coach these days versus when, you know, he first started at Alabama. Just think about the year-round recruiting now. There are no, there is no offseason anymore. It's 365 days a year, and you have to re-recruit your players on top of that. Uh, and he's, he, he's up there in age for sure, but I think it had more to do with the changing landscape of college football. It's it's a young man's game, and these guys make so much money now too, Colby, that it's hard to keep going like you, you used to. And I think that's what makes Mike Gundy impressive is he, he still seems engaged and into it. He's done a good job in the portal, and he's made a ton of money too, and he could retire tomorrow. But uh, pretty shocking news here with Nick Saban. But I think the it's just so difficult to be head coach these days. Yeah, it is. And I don't know if um... – the changing landscape of college football, you watch that game between Alabama and Michigan, and Alabama was thoroughly dominated on both lines of scrimmage. And that's obviously very new for Nick Saban. The The talent gap in what Saban had to what everyone else had um, five years ago, eight years ago, ten years ago, I mean, 
Alabama was rotating in three, four deep of NFL guys. The portal wasn't a thing. NIL wasn't a thing. They brought all these guys in there because they said, come to Alabama, and in three or four years, you will go be a first-round NFL draft pick. And they had those guys littered throughout the roster. But now, those guys just go play somewhere else. They go get paid somewhere else. So uh, it's very different. And, yeah, I I think that 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 Michigan game was kind of a microcosm of what we've seen in college football where the parity is shifting away from one school having all of the athletes. And, uh, yeah, I don't I don't blame Saban. Being a college football coach nowadays is different than it ever has been. He decided to get out, and, man, what a legend. I mean, sources say he was scared to come to Stillwater. Yeah, I'd like to speak to your sources. Um, that's probably what did it. Half a decade away, he was terrified <laughs> of Michigan Stadium. And the paddle people! He didn't want the paddle people on top of him, so he ran for the hills. That's what I heard, but um, uh, this is notable. Uh, Marshall Scott just tweeting this out. The active coaching wins list with Nick Saban's reported retirement. You got Mac Brown at number one, Kirk Ferentz, Brian Kelly, Dabo Swinney, and one Michael Gundy at 166 wins. So Mike Gundy now top five winning as coach active, and uh, it just shows you, Colby, he's outlasting a lot of big names. Yeah, he is. That's crazy, um, especially when you consider the fact that Kirk Ferentz doesn't count because he just beats Indiana and Rutgers. Um, yeah, <laughs> Mike Gundy is he, he's in the pantheon of, of active college football coaches for sure. And I mean, who knows how much longer he goes, what his legacy ends up being, what Oklahoma state can accomplish now in a big 12 without Oklahoma and without Texas and with a 12 team college football playoff. I don't know about you, but I was thrilled when the national championship game was over on Monday because now the slate is wiped clean and every program in the country has zero national championships in Colby Powell's personal record book because until 2024, this upcoming season, college football has not had any way to correctly identify a champion. So everything up until now was a warm-up, one free off the first tee for college football, and now everybody starts at zero, and I'm excited to see what Oklahoma State can do in the new system. It's certainly a new era. It's going to be interesting to see how OSU factors into that because you're right. They have been on the outside looking in really when they shouldn't be in certain years like 2011. So that'll that'll be fascinating. Who do you think Alabama hires? I I think Dan Lanning's a name that gets thrown out early. Dabo Swinney is an alum. He's a natural connection. I think Dabo's star has fallen somewhat. I think Lanning is kind of the younger version of him. Super recruiter, coached at Georgia, was a GA at Alabama. And I know Dan Lanning was very effusive in his denials that he wanted to leave Oregon, that he would go somewhere else. But this changes a lot with Nick Saban retiring. I mean, Oregon, it's a great program. You can win there. Them going to the Big Ten, I think, will even be even better for them. But they ain't freaking Alabama. So if if Alabama comes calling, I think Dan Lanning will be the guy. Yeah, look, the Pacific Northwest is beautiful, and I would certainly rather live in Eugene than in Tuscaloosa. But Alabama's a much better job. Um, and Oregon – Honestly, Oregon's probably one of the best jobs in the country, but that's just kind of the gulf uh, from Alabama to everybody else, and, and maybe not everybody else. There are a handful of schools up there with Alabama, but um, Lanning is one. I, I think Sark could be an outside contender. Maybe they don't want to take on uh, Sark. I mean, he's only really had the one year at Texas where he achieved, but he, he was under Saban at Alabama, of course. I mean, so many guys have been under Saban. So many guys have come through as analysts, um, assistants, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, Kirby Smart, I, I don't think is leaving Georgia with what he's built there to go to Alabama and try to replicate what Nick Saban did. It's going to be, it's a great job, obviously, but following a legend in sports, not an easy thing to do because you're going to be held to the standard 
of the legend. And if whoever goes to Alabama puts together anything that falls short of a dynasty, that fan base is going to be rabid. And establishing and creating and having a dynasty in college football is going to be more difficult than ever. We may never see something like what Nick Saban put together at Alabama over the course of 15 years. Um, We may never see anything like that again because it's going to be harder to win championships in a 12-team playoff. You're going to have to play more games. You're going to have to beat more high-level opponents. Um, Your players, your your roster turnover is going to be more and more every year. College football is, is going to get some of the things that I've been clamoring for forever. It needed more parity, and it needed a real way to identify a national champion. And NIL and the transfer portal and the 12-team playoff are going to accomplish a lot of that. So I'm I'm actually very excited. I, I know a lot of people um, long for the old days of college football. I'm very excited for the new era uh, in which Alabama is not four deep with first-round draft picks, and there's a 12-team playoff where a team like Oklahoma State can get in and try to compete with some of these big dogs. So um, I'm very excited about the future of college football, and I, I think whoever takes that Alabama job, the expectations are going to be overwhelming. So they're going to need somebody who can handle that. It's tough to follow a legend that that will be a really hard position for anyone to take. So now that that's uh, something worth monitoring. And I think, you know, speaking of excitement moving forward, Colby, I mean, Alan Bowman has announced he is returning. He was granted an extra year of eligibility for his seventh season. You know, Colby, a lot of people go to college for seven years. They're, they're called doctors, but um, Alan Bowman, it will be the quarterback next year and really kind of, I think begins a serious candidacy for Oklahoma State to be a favorite to win the to be the favorite to win the Big Twelve. I know you got Utah coming in with Cam Rising returning as well, but you just look at the starting offense and all the they think they have what eight seventeen or eighteen returning starters across the board, and you look at the offense. You got Alan Bowman and Ollie Gordon in the backfield. You have Dijon Stribling coming back, who was without question wide receiver one. I thought he showed really good stuff in only three games that he played. Pair him with Brennan Presley and Rashad Owens. We know what they did down the stretch. Combine that with a starting offensive line, all five coming back with that experience uh, in front of Ollie Gordon. I mean, the offense, Colby, is locked and loaded for next year. And I think it's a real big cause for optimism for Oklahoma State as a Big 12 championship contender. Yeah, Oklahoma State, for me, is the favorite going into the season next year. You look at the non-con, I would expect Oklahoma State to come out of the non-con 3-0. I would have expected the same thing this year. Um, They've got South Dakota State, which, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they just win another FCS championship? Yes, back-to-back now FCS champions in South Dakota State coming to Stillwater. That's a team you should beat, but... Let's not act like a back-to-back FCS champion is going to be a pushover, a walkover. Um, South Dakota State will put up a fight. Arkansas in week two, again at Boone Pickens, I think that they um, are undergoing a ton of roster turnover. They're not going to be any good. And then you go at Tulsa. I think you're 3-0 in the non-conference, and this team rolls into conference play with a ton of veteran guys, um, some good games in Stillwater. You've got, uh, let's see here, Arizona State, Utah, Texas Tech, West Virginia, and TCU are your home conference games next year. On the road, you're going to go to Baylor, BYU, Colorado, and Kansas State. I mean, there's going to be some tough road games in there, but – I don't know, man. Ten and two kind of feels like it should be the floor, barring any major um, noteworthy injuries. I, I'm I'm looking too far ahead. I know that, but ten and two feels like the floor for a team that returns so much against that schedule. 
No, I, I totally agree. And I mean, a lot of this is going to come down to health. That's been a big bugaboo. And I, I think the the defense, we'll talk about some of the guys returning that have announced this week as well, but there's still some, you know, on the chamber, on pistols firing the message board, there's still plenty of, you know, it's mostly positive for Alan Bowman, as you'd expect, but there's still plenty on Twitter and on the chamber that they're just not that enthused. They, they're kind of ready to turn the page. They re, They recite his interception numbers. And I just... I said this on the last pod, but do you want to go back to the South Alabama game with 200 total yards? Because the quarterbacks behind him could be capable of that again. And it's kind of underrated that he was second in the Big 12 in, in passing. Uh, he led the Big 12 in pass attempts and completions, which you don't really think about. So when you're reciting these interception numbers, and you can go through each individual one, not all of them are his fault. I He, uh, he, he raised the floor of this offense to a level that you want him to come back. You need him to come back because the floor will drop without Alan Bowman going into 2024. Sure, you could you could argue that you get someone in the portal and raise the ceiling. You could argue that Zane Flores could raise the ceiling if he gets some experience in the non-conference. Those are all complete unknowns. And I think the known quantity of Alan Bowman is a reason why you're starting to see Oklahoma State get a lot more preseason top 20, the all the way to early top 25s are out. I wanted to ask you about those, but that's that's because Alan Bowman's coming back in addition to Ollie Gordon and all the other names I mentioned. Yeah, 100%. It's, I, I understand what people are seeing whenever they say that they would rather go with somebody younger. I, I don't think that those people are idiots. I know everything on the internet turns into you're an idiot. No, you're an idiot. Um, I don't think that those people are idiots. I don't see it the way they do at all. I mean, you you can look at the game against Texas A&M, for example. There were people on Twitter. I saw them because I wanted to check the pulse the next day, see how people were feeling about it, who said that that game was proof that Alan Bowman shouldn't come back and be the starting quarterback because of the two interceptions. One of them wasn't a bad interception. was a great play by the DB. One of them was a horrible interception. But you know what else everyone was ranting and raving about after that game? Rashad Owens, 10 for 164 and two touchdowns. Brennan Presley, 16 for 152. I'm sorry, guys. That's 26 catches for 316 yards and two touchdowns? Like, those are your top two receivers? Who's getting those guys the ball? Alan Bowman is getting those guys the ball. He has a chemistry that he has developed with them. And, and here is a big piece of why I want Alan Bowman back next year. Alan Bowman transferred into a new system. He was not given the keys to the car. He was not told that he was the starter. He was not named the guy. He was splitting reps three ways through the non-con. He wasn't even getting all the first team reps through the non-con. Um, his two leading receivers at the end of the year, Rashad Owens wasn't even a starter at the beginning of the year. He has a true wide receiver one on the outside in Rashad Owens. Brennan Presley is going to break school records for receptions next season. He has two what I think are pretty elite receivers, and we're adding in Deshaun Stribling, who, I, I mean, he's the reason that Rashad Owens was on the bench at the start of the season an entire offseason with these guys and Alan Bowman. He's going to be 24 at the start of next season. He's a veteran guy. Yes, the interceptions this year were a problem. Um, the interceptions for Dak Prescott last year were a problem. And guess what? He's going to finish top three in MVP voting. They put it together and they made it all work. This is an offense that at the beginning of the season didn't know who Ollie Gordon was or how to use him, didn't know who Rashad Owens was or how to use him. They figured these things out. I, I just think... Um, Alan Bowman can be better next year than what he was this year. And 
Is he going to throw an interception here or there? Yeah, maybe. But everything else that he does, getting the ball to Owens and to Presley and hopefully to Stribling and making key throws. I mean, how many key throws did he make on third and five or six or seven in Bedlam to extend those drives? It's just, uh, I want that veteran guy who I know exactly what I'm getting, who I know has chemistry with my receivers. I, I just, I love the idea of Bowman out there with Owens, Presley and Stribling, Ollie in the backfield. That is a lot for a defense um, to plan for and to deal with. No, I, I agree. I, I would reiterate all those sentiments. And I think one of the things that's lost with Alan Bowman is something I've, I've really thought about when I was frustrated with him on the throwaways. I think a lot of those kind of ticked down his completion percentage, but Adam Lunt really wrote a really good kind of post on the, on the chamber. Again, I would encourage folks to sign up for the chamber on pistols firing. It's a, Really fun way to chat with Oklahoma State fans with all the vitriol from from OU fans on on Twitter. Uh, he kind of charted all the throwaways, and he he basically said, you know, Alan Bowman had to lead the nation in throwaways. And what that did was obviously, you know, the stat on all the sacks given up. Oklahoma State was one of the best in the country. They were number one in the Big Twelve at avoiding giving up sacks. And he wrote this very long explanation that can be summarized as. His throwaways and avoiding taking sacks and getting the ball out quick elevated this offense. I think they had the most third down attempts uh, of any school in the Big 12. That shows you sustained success on offense where you're continually getting the ball to third down. That means you're having longer drives and more success. His smarts of being a seventh-year quarterback and knowing when to just get rid of it, it's something that we wanted Spencer Sanders to do way more. He would run out of bounds for a couple of yard losses at times. I think that's kind of a lost hidden figure when it comes to Alan Bowman. I thought it was a really smart idea by, by Adam Lunt that I had really thought more and more about and kind of talking myself off the ledge. Oh, throw it downfield, throw it downfield. Don't just throw it away. Well, over the course of the entire season, I thought that really made the offense – more efficient's the wrong word, but less prone to big mistakes that are drive killers. No, you're absolutely right. It's uh, Warren Buffett has a great quote. What's the number one rule in trading in the stock market? Never, ever lose money. Don't take unnecessary risks. Don't do stupid things. Only do things that are positives. And yes, the interceptions are there. I understand that. Um, I have not gone back and watched the film and charted to see, okay, how many of these interceptions were on Bowman? How many were on the receivers? Um, how many were early in the season in those first three, four games when they were figuring things out? And I don't think a lot of other people have either. I think a lot of the people who are just looking at his end-of-season interception numbers aren't factoring those in. I've brought this up before. The, the BYU game, he throws a pick six uh, down when he's got his heels on his own goal line. I mean, it's pretty clear Jaden Bray ran the wrong route. He's supposed to run a slant. He ran a go. Um, he expected his receiver to be there as a pick six. So I, I think that there's some nuance to those things. But I also think just the ability to live to fight another down. Okay, I'm outside the pocket. I'm scrambling. The defense won this play. The, this play's over. The defense already won it. I can take a sack. I can try to force it in over the middle across my body. Or I can throw it away, and we can have third and four instead of third and 11 or instead of a turnover. And it, it's just... It's very much two sides of the same coin, right? Um, or, or maybe it's opposites. I don't even know what I'm trying to say here. But when Spencer Sanders was the quarterback, people would lose their minds because he'd be rolling and he'd try to force it across the middle of the field and it would get intercepted. And then Alan Bowman takes over and he rolls toward the sideline and he throws it into the sixth row and people are angry. I'm like, isn't that what you've been asking Spencer to do for four years? It's to just, just to throw it into the seats and live to see the next play. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that a lot of what Alan Bowman did this year 
to help this offense probably is not something that's going to show up if you just Google Alan Bowman stats. No, totally agree. Um, were you surprised you got the extra year? I I think once we had that article that came out from the Oklahoman, or I think it was the uh, the Hutchins twins on on sellout crowd that, that gave us a little more insight into what the d- decision making process is. But so you're one, were you surprised? And two, do you think this? How do you think the preseason poll will turn out for Oklahoma State? I think Marshall Scott charted it. I mean, um, OSU is high as high as twelfth in our boy Stewie Mandel's preseason top twenty five. But the, the average, based on all of them that have come out so far, OSU sits around 20. Uh, I think that's still a little low for all the returning talent they have for a team that won you know double-digit games and was in the Big 12 championship game. Uh, just your, your outlook on all those preseason polls and, and where OSU sits. Um, yeah, in, in terms of whether I was surprised, not really. Uh, lately, you look around college football, and, and it's you get a waiver, you get a waiver, you get a waiver. I mean, they're just handing out extra years of eligibility like it's candy. Uh, Tualia Tungavailoa, he played a couple of games back when he was with Alabama, like over the limit, but he just came in to knee it out and didn't have any snaps. Nick Saban wrote a letter on his behalf and all this stuff. Like, he's going to get another year. Um, they're passing out waivers. So, no, I, I wasn't surprised. I thought all along that he was going to get his waiver um, for that year at Texas Tech where he didn't get enough games in. As far as the polls, honestly, I think in the 15 to 20 range is where you're going to see Oklahoma State most of the time. And I'm okay with that because, you know, you, me, the people listening to this podcast, we know the ins and outs of everybody who's coming back, of the systems that have been put in place, of the fact that this is going to be the um, most cohesion that we've had on the offensive line at Oklahoma State in years, and second year under the D coordinator, getting the new system in place with a lot of the same guys coming back. Like, we know all those ins and outs, but people voting nationally around the country on like AP poll, stuff like that, coaches poll, they're not going to know all that. They're not going to be in the weeds, just like we're not in the weeds with other teams all around the country. Um, so they're going to look at Oklahoma State and they're going to say, yeah, good team, won 10 games last year. Um, haven't ever, you know, really climbed the mountain. So where am I going to be? I don't know, 17. And that's where they're going to throw Oklahoma State in. So I think that's probably about right to start the season. Um, I don't worry too much about those preseason polls because you play the games, and unless you're Florida State, things have a way of working themselves out. And that problem, I think, will be mostly solved with the 12-team playoff because you're not going 13-0 and and getting left out at number 13 like you would at number 5. Um, there's going to be a team at number 13 next year that's mad that they got left out, but that's not the same thing as being 13-0 and and getting the boot. So, um yeah, those things will work themselves out, I think. Yep. On the defensive side, Kendall Daniels announced he's returning. We hadn't really talked about him, Colby. He he could have certainly entered the portal. I think that's you know a sign of how quiet things have been this offseason with the transfer portal, but a guy you would think teams would be interested in. And did you notice, Colby, he posted a clip of the movie Tombstone, who you famously announced on this podcast you had not seen. Did this Did this reference go over your head? Which movie is this now? Tombstone, you said? Yeah. I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah, apparently. I, it's still on my list. Trust me, it's on my list. Um, haven't gotten to it. What was the last movie I watched? I believe it was Paw Patrol, the Mighty Movie was the last movie I uh, watched. Yeah, kids not, will do that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly when I'm going to be getting to Tombstone. Kid, you need to, because again, the OSU's Jumbotron shows the, the famous clip, uh, Hell's Coming With Me, before every home game. Just do me a favor and watch it. You'll uh, you'll be blown away by Val Kilmer as, as Doc Holliday. I think it's one of the most epic acting performances in the history of movies. And that's, that's not hyperbole. You could have told me that the I'm coming and hell's coming with me video was shot by the Oklahoma state video department out at the equestrian farm. (laughs) And and I would have believed you for sure. 
uh wrong go watch tombstone everyone on this podcast is imploring you as well because it's it's in my top 10 all-time favorite movies it, it, it's fantastic honestly you have sold me on it and i want to go watch it um just as someone with a job and a toddler and a, and a wife i don't know when that's going to happen especially man during football and now the thunder are good again now i have to watch the thunder um golf season just started back up like who has time for movies yeah well i'm with you late at night before when i'm trying to put off going to bed is, is the optimum time for me. So maybe you can sneak one in late at night. Um, Kendall Daniels coming back. Your, your thoughts. I mean, I, one of my new year's resolutions for OSU football, I think should be to move him to kind of outside linebacker edge rusher, maybe a Colin Oliver type Colin Oliver also announced he's coming back since we taped. Uh, we missed a lot of breaking news, but uh, Daniels, they, they did get the transfer from UTEP to play safety. I think that could, kind of paved the way for him playing more at other positions. I'm not here sitting here speculating. They're just going to move him from safety permanently. I think he's a guy you could certainly move around and a guy that certainly defenses need to be aware of where he's at. If you move him around a lot, that's something, that's something extra for them to account for. Yeah, I think so too. And um, I, I think he's still going to be a safety, but I would like to see him be less of a true safety. I think, I don't know if it was last week, a couple of weeks ago, I compared him to like a, a young Jamal Adams in the NFL where they just moved him all around. And Pete Carroll, who, uh, speaking of coaches moving on, moving on after 14 years from the Seahawks, they uh, invited him not to come back next season, which was a little bit surprising. But yeah, I, I just think that he can be used. I don't think his athleticism is being used enough on the back end as a safety. I think we saw in that BYU game in the second half, um, they really were limited offensively, and so they were able to bring Kendall Daniels down into the box as a gap filler. And, man, I thought he was so good in that role. He was popping guys. Um, I just think you need him around the ball more instead of on the back end of the defense trying to figure out where guys are going and which crosser is his responsibility. Uh, maybe that's just not where his skill set is best suited. And, and that's looking at a defense this year that gave up a ton of big plays. And he's on the back end for a lot of those. So, um, yeah, I think that there's going to have to be some serious searching this offseason from Brian Nardo, from the defensive staff, and from Kendall Daniels to figure out exactly how his skill set can best be utilized because I think he's an awesome football player. I think he's super athletic. Uh, he's got pretty good hands whenever the ball gets thrown his direction. He's got the size. He's got the speed. I, I think he's a pretty good tackler. I just think sometimes he gets a little lost in coverage on the back end. So, um, yeah, I, I think that they're going to have to do some serious work this offseason to see kind of like with Colin Oliver, where as a freshman he was he was crazy elite and then they did some different things with him and it didn't work and they kind of got back to the bread and butter. I think they're really going to have to figure out how to best use Kendall Daniels so that he can still be on the field almost all the time because he is such a good player, uh, but to where you can get more out of him than just putting him back there as a pure safety. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, that's something to look forward to as Brian Nardo moves into year two. A, a guy you kind of confuse him with when you're watching TV because the dreadlocks and just the the kind of a physically imposing safety is is Trey Rucker also announcing his return. So as Colby, as I'm excited about all the offensive guys coming back, I know the defense didn't play as well, uh, certainly down the stretch. That's That's something that they'll have to improve upon. Just getting this level of experience back – on the defense is just as big because as we know, it's, it's a two way game and it's just a stark difference from last year. I thought, I really thought Trey Rucker after the announcement came out that he got in trouble with the law again, with the DUI, you know, the, the focus kind of shifted to him. I didn't think he had played as well up until that point, uh, especially in coverage. 
by the end of the year, I thought he was one of their better players on defense. I thought Trey Rucker really came on week after week after week all the way throughout conference play. So his return, I feel, is just as big as, as Kendall Daniels. In fact, he, I think he had more of an impact than Daniels did this year. Yeah, I know certainly over the second half of the season, there were a lot of instances where he was kind of an enforcer on the back end of that defense. He had some big hits, um, good tackler on the outside. He, he had some plays in the Oklahoma game that were really good. He's just he, – he's a good player. And like you said, um, things didn't get off to a great start. He did have the DUI, which we talked about earlier in the season, and Oklahoma State handled all that internally, and, and he just kind of went to work, handled his business, and – he hadn't gotten in any more trouble, and he was a great player down the stretch for Oklahoma State. So I think that that's just another big addition on the back end of this defense. And, and I think what is so important for Brian Nardo is that he had year one to get the new system implemented, but now in year two, he's not going to have to teach it to a whole new group of guys, a whole bunch of guys who've never done it in-game under him. He's going to have so many of the same guys out there. And I think for a, a second-year defensive coordinator in a season that is going to have mile-high expectations, I think that that is going to be massively comforting for Brian Nardo and can hopefully sure up some of the big play problems that we saw in the back end last season. Yeah, I think that's huge news. And again, OSU getting a lot of returning talent with Colin Oliver as well. Uh, they're, it's one of those years, kind of like 2021, Colby, when you look at all the fifth and sixth year, and then in Alan Bowman's case, seventh year seniors they're going to have on this team. Uh, that's a big advantage. We talked about that so much in 2021, about just how old and mature the team was. And that, that's an honest statement. Saying they're old sounds funny, but they're they're grown men. I mean, these freshmen are 18 years old when they show up on campus. And you had those Malcolm Rodriguez's of the world that have played a ton of football. And I think they're going to be chock full of them on offense and defense. And I think that's something that's going to serve them very well, particularly going on the road, of course. But uh, I think that that's a proven model for success for Oklahoma State, those those fifth, sixth super senior type type players. And now they're they're chock full of them, Colby. I'm 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 gonna be very bullish on, on Oklahoma State in 2024, much like I was in 2023, by the way. Yeah, me too. Mike Gundy uh, said it best. 22-year-olds are better. They're better than 19-year-olds. They just are. Um, better at just about everything because you've got that life experience, right? You've got that wisdom. You've grown up a little bit. You've matured. When I was 18, 19, my freshman year at Oklahoma State, I was an idiot. I was running around with my friends doing idiot things. Um, I had crazy amounts of energy all the time. I was just going, 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 bouncing off the walls. And, you know, Alan Bowman's going to be 24 at the start of next season. When I was 24, I was married. My wife and I had jobs, a house, a couple of dogs. Uh, I mean, we'd settled down by that point. Like, the difference between 18, 19, and 23, 24 um, is startling. And I think that that sometimes plays out on the college football field. And it's something people probably don't give enough credence to, just having a veteran team. Young, talented guys are great, uh, but they're still young, and they make they make young guy mistakes. And I think Oklahoma State's in such a good position next year with all the veteran guys coming back because that helps you especially. I mean, you've got road trips next season to Waco. You're going to Provo to play BYU. You're going to uh, Boulder to play Colorado, what I think will be an improved Colorado team. And then you're at Kansas State. Kansas State's always pretty good, even though they kind of had their offseason like what Oklahoma State had a year ago. Kansas State kind of saw a mass exodus uh, this offseason, including their quarterback, Will Howard, who wound up at Ohio State. So uh, they might be a little bit down. Oh, I'm also showing uh, at TCU here next season as well. So I, I feel a lot better having five conference road games because you, you want to be elite. You're going to have to get through four of those, I would say, unscathed. 
And doing that with a bunch of guys who are between 21 and 24 years old just feels a lot better than doing it with a bunch of 19 and 20 year olds. Yep, totally. That's going to be a, a big, big advantage. And before I get to some of the portal guys they have coming in, I think it's important to no longer bury this. Uh, I think we got to get to it right now. Is that's uh, Justin Blackman has named been named to the 2024 College Football Hall of Fame class. I mean, Justin Blackman, that name speaks for itself for Oklahoma State listeners. But I took to Twitter and I I quote tweeted the the tweet that Oklahoma State football sent out and said the greatest wide receiver in college football history. And I don't really think it's debatable. And certainly anything's debatable when it comes to who's the greatest. I understand that. But for me, Colby, this list consists of three names that you could even argue. Uh, two of them have two Blitnikoff awards. That's Justin Blackman, Michael Crabtree. And the one that everyone likes, all the casuals like to throw out because they watched a lot of NFL is Larry Fitzgerald. And in my opinion, Larry Fitzgerald doesn't even belong in the conversation because before we even get to the stats, Colby, Pittsburgh was in the Big East back then playing a, you know, not even close to a, a power five level schedule. Uh, but let me get to the uh, statistics as well here. I mean, Justin Blackman, and basically they all played two years. Um, Blackman had the, the one year as a as a freshman where he didn't play much. Des Bryant will certainly do that to, to a man. But they both had two years, really. And Blackman leads them all in receiving with 3,648 yards, 41 touchdowns. Crabtree's about 560 less than that at 3,128. And Fitzgerald's way down there at 2,600, uh, 2,684, and only 34 touchdowns. So, you know, seven less touchdowns for for Fitzgerald. I mean, the statistics back up the eye test, too. And another thing, Oklahoma State threw the ball about, I, I looked it up, they threw it, I believe, 86 times less than um, Texas Tech did in 2008. And that's, that's the last year of Crabtree. So Texas Tech's throwing the ball around a ton more, and still Blackman still outproduced Texas Tech uh, back in those days. So for me, Colby, any way you want to slice it, you look at the awards case, you look at the stats, you can throw out Randy Moss, who had that unbelievable year. He had one season in college football, and that was at Marshall, playing at a lower level. Uh, we all know what Randy, Mar Randy Moss turned into. But for college football history, the numbers and the eye test back it up. Justin Blackman's I the guy. I can't, and I'm not going where you wanted me to go to first, but I can't imagine being the kid back in that day. This was like pre when everybody's film was on the internet. Imagine you show up to your game and you're lined up across from Randy Moss at that level of football, and then he <laughs> starts doing Randy Moss things to you, and you're like, whoa, 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 hold on. This is not the NFL. Um, you know, he was, he, was, he was committed to Florida State, yeah, so that's right. broke my heart, got in trouble. Uh, I think he went to Notre Dame, got in trouble there. Uh, then that's how he wound up at Marshall because he's from West Virginia. Yeah, that's right. I just honestly, I would love to interview whoever the first corner was that faced off against Randy Marshall. <laughs> no kidding. When he played at Marshall, I would love to interview that guy. Um, Justin Blackman's the best receiver in college football history. Michael Crabtree, I think, is number two. And Larry Fitzgerald, somewhere down the list. I don't know. We could probably argue with a slew of guys after that. Larry Fitzgerald, what he did in the NFL was incredible. And he was a great college receiver. Um, but I think there's some nostalgia baked in there, too. I think people, um, he had a little bit of a Heisman campaign going back in the day. I, I think there's some nostalgia baked in there i do appreciate you sending out that tweet because i was able to block whoever the guy was in the mentions calling everybody stat bros and arguing on on behalf of larry fitzgerald i'm like 
This guy can hang out at Carson's mentions as much as he wants to. I am never letting this idiot show up in my notifications. So I went ahead and blocked that guy because he was just he, he was too dumb to really interact uh, with normal people. I blocked that guy too. He was insufferable. It, it takes a lot to get me to block someone, Colby. If they just won't stop, then you're gone. Sorry. See you, you later. Most of the people that I block on Twitter are not people that are interacting directly with me. It's normally like you've tweeted something and I'm like, oh my God, this person is insufferable. You're never coming in my mentions. And then I block them. I do that with you. I used to do that. Like people would get on Todd Lisenby about stuff, Matt Ravis. Uh, it's like I'll see someone in other people's mentions that is just too dumb to ever interact with and I'll block them so they never wind up in my mentions. So y'all are kind of doing like a public service by outing these people. Yeah, I mean, you can mute conversations now i've found on twitter but i just i didn't want that guy anywhere near my feet again so he, he's gone see you later yeah. never again um black was the best he was just he was truly unguardable um what he did in the fiesta ball to stanford like what he did to so many teams so many guys um it wasn't one route he was all over the field he and whedon were just an unbelievable combination he just he's the best of all time and we got to watch it for two years it was amazing obviously we're, we're all um we love the way it ended in the fiesta bowl but still very bitter about the bcs decision for a team that i think we all probably thought was the best team in the country that year but still the memories that justin blackman gave oklahoma state fans special special stuff that was my that was my freshman year at oklahoma state carson that's that's just not ever going to be top for me i don't think with oklahoma state football unless they win a national championship in my lifetime I don't think my freshman year, my freshman fall being the fall of 2011 will ever be topped. No, that was um, a special, special year. And uh, so, yeah, there's some black men getting, getting his due and it's well-deserved. Um, also Oklahoma state adding some guys in the uh, transfer portal, Colby picking up what I believe, you know, some key positions, you know, you and I have speculated last couple weeks on the running back position, who was going to spell Ollie Gordon next year. You know, he's had a ton of carries, throughout uh, this season and uh, the workload's been pretty significant and there were some injuries behind him as well and now some defections but Oklahoma State gets a uh, transfer portal from Arkansas AJ Green we've heard that name before former defensive back for Oklahoma State this is a different AJ Green a running back out of Tulsa Union uh, he carried it uh, 201 times and 953 yards and six touchdowns in the SEC so he was a four-star recruit in 2021 Colby so uh, a talented Backup running back for Ollie Gordon coming into the fold. I think it's a big get. Yeah, I think that this is a huge get with uh, Jaden Nixon going out of the way. We saw it this past year. I, I mean, look, Ollie's a stud. Ollie's RB1. Um, 25, 30 touches a game. That sets in over the course of a season. I think having a backup running back, especially you would hope that Oklahoma State will be able to have a few blowouts next year. I mean, I don't think they're going to go out here and have seven or eight games uh, where you can get Ollie off the field for the fourth quarter. But if you even have two, three of those where he can just take that many fewer touches, eight fewer touches in those three games. Uh, I mean, that's a game's worth of touches, right? So we saw what Jaden Nixon was able to do as the RB2 this season, the big play he made in the BYU game. And um, obviously injuries are a part of football. What if Ollie were to go down for four to six weeks, a high ankle sprain, something like that. Then all of a sudden you've only had one other scholarship running back on the roster. So getting AJ green in a veteran guy who has played a ton of football at the power five level over at Arkansas. Um, yeah. I think it's a big get for Oklahoma state as the RB two and it's a clear RB two, which 
he knows that, and he still decided to come to Oklahoma State, so I think that that's big. He knows what his role is coming in. He accepts that that's the position that he wants to be in, and any opportunities he gets uh, above and beyond that are gravy. But, yeah, I, I think that this is a big get for Oklahoma State to sure up some depth in the running back room behind Ollie. Yeah, talented kid. I mean, ran for 1,300 yards and 19 touchdowns as a senior at Tulsa Union. Um, he actually had committed to Tulsa, uh, but decommitted on Monday. So obviously Oklahoma State saw that he was going to Tulsa. and was like, wait a minute, you want to come play in Stillwater? And I I do think they probably convinced him of what kind of you're saying is, you know, always had a ton of carries. There's always the injury scenario. And we plan on using you. Look, here's how much we used Jaden Nixon. Probably didn't use him a ton last year, but they did use him throughout the last couple of years. They 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 always play, you know, two to three running backs per year, regardless of if it's an Ollie Gordon, a Chuba Hubbard. They they know it's a long grind, and it's been one for for Ollie Gordon. So I think it's just um, this ad along with a couple more. I think are just huge positions of need. There's not a ton of needs with all the returning players we've mentioned throughout this podcast, but there are some spots. I think running back was one. Uh, defensive end, I think it's another. They get. They get a guy from uh, Gannon University, a Division II school that Brian Nardo came from. So obviously some familiarity with this guy, Obi Azigbo, 6'3", 252 pounds, just looks the part, Colby. You just see pictures of this guy. He just looks like a, a, a quality defensive end for a three-three-five scheme. And clearly Brian Nardo is very familiar with him. And that, to me, that says a lot. Uh, I know Adam Lunt also high on this guy as well. So I think this guy and one more, I think they're really adding positions of need here in the portal. Uh, do we think we're going to Obi Azigbo or Obi Azigbo here? What's your, what's your, uh, what odds are we putting on this? Azigbo or Azigbo? Uh, Azigbo would be my guest. Azigbo. Okay. So we've got Azigbo, Azigbo, Azigbo. We've got options here. Call him Obi. Obi is uh, probably, but I'll be curious to see how it's actually pronounced because we've got some options here. We've got some really good names on the defensive side of the football for Oklahoma State. Amen. Ogbong Bamiga, obviously king amongst them. Uh, yeah, this is kind of a, a familiarity get for Brian Nardo, which I think is a good thing. Knows how he fits in the scheme. I think that's a big one. Um, and then I'm sure that you were going to get to Tyler Foster, the Ohio tight end. That's um, We gave them one. They gave us one, right? Josiah Johnson is, is on his way out the door. Uh, he exhausted his eligibility. So that's a big get, I think, for uh, for Oklahoma State to, to get the tight end from Ohio to hopefully fill some of what you're losing with Josiah Johnson. I believe uh, Braden Cassidy also exhausted his eligibility. So a position of need for Oklahoma State. Yeah, for sure. I think it's the one I'm probably most excited about. Uh, Tyler Foster out of Ohio University, OU, which is where Gunnar Gundy, by the way, is transferring to. We wish him the best. I think that's a good spot for him. But this was, um, you know, I went down the kind of the starting lineup for next year, and there was a gaping hole at tight end. You know, Josiah Johnson, he wasn't the focal point of the offense by any stretch, but man, he had some huge moments that you and I have talked so much about throughout this season. And this guy's a huge target, 6'5", 247. Uh, you know, no one – you look at any tight end in the portal, their stats are not going to wow you just because tight ends just aren't thrown to as much as they used to be. But big target, caught a game-winning touchdown in their bowl game two years ago. Uh, feels a just critical, critical need for the offense. And I'm just, again, so excited they're going to a traditional out-and-out -out tight end versus the Cowboy back. And I – I think this is a great get too, Colby. I mean, I think this is uh, one that's going to really work well, much like Josiah Johnson did. 
Yeah, I think so too. And Josiah Johnson, he's got some shoes to fill. And and Braden Casty has done a lot of good things in this offense. But Johnson made some key key catches this season at big time moments. So uh, certainly some shoes to fill. But I, I agree with you. I, I like the traditional tight end. I think it works well in the offense. Veteran quarterback who can use that guy in key moments where maybe the defense really tries to zero in uh, on Brennan and Rashad Owens. If both those guys uh, get help shaded their way, then you can get a tight end coming across the middle. Um, open up the seam. So, yeah, I think that that's a big get at a position of need for Oklahoma State. Yep, so they're doing well in the portal. And as we transition to basketball talk, this is brought to you by Chris's University Spirit, your one-stop cowboy shop. Be sure to shop at chrisuniversityspirit.com. We know basketball season's in full swing, so be sure to stop by Chris's if you're heading up to Gallagher-Iba as we are now into conference play. And speaking of Colby, they had a big game over the weekend against Baylor. Played really well in that game. Uh, Kept Baylor really at bay throughout the game. And then, you know, Brandon Garrison had his coming out party. But as we've seen so many times under Mike Boynton in crunch time, they just can't buy a bucket. I mean, they went the last three minutes and change without a field goal into overtime. And uh, it was really a huge opportunity lost over the weekend. Yeah, and what was a heartbreaker on Saturday was the disaster plays at the end of a close game that that gets you beat, right? Baylor is an elite offensive team. They have been an elite college basketball team over the last, I don't know, five, eight years under Scott Drew and what he's built down there. And you you don't make disaster plays and beat those teams. And Oklahoma State, I thought, had three of them down the stretch of that game. One, you get a four-point possession on a dumb flagrant foul. Uh, you go to the line, Daly hits a couple of free throws, you get another bucket. A nice four-point possession, you open up a four-point lead with about two minutes left. And then on the other end, you go under a screen, you should go over, and then Keon Williams slides right underneath the feet of, I believe it was Ray J. Dennis who hit the three, and uh, you give him a four-point play. And to just give it all back in that moment, the three hurts, but to give it all back in that moment and let Baylor feel like they were completely let off the hook for what they just did on the other end, uh, that was a really tough one. And then there were two in overtime. Number one, Eric Daly is bringing the ball up the floor with a few minutes to go in overtime against Baylor. Javon Small's on the floor. Bryce Thompson's on the floor. Why is Eric Daly bringing the ball up the court? Um, I know that that's something that they've worked on. It's something that they want to be a part of their offense. And I'm totally okay with that being a part of the offense. I'm not okay with that in the middle of overtime against Baylor when he's being hounded in the backcourt. This is different than a free run to bring the ball up the floor. He is being hounded by a guard, gets the ball poked away for a free bucket whenever you've got a lead in overtime. And then the obvious one uh, at the end, Keon Williams sprints down the floor. There's 15 seconds left. You're trailing by one. If there's something obvious there in transition, go get it. But he he just, it's like he wanted to score in transition. That was the only thing that he could, he could focus on was scoring in transition. And then he got down there, cut. It looked like, I, if I'm remembering right, I've slept since then. I think he jumped his feet, made a pass, gets it picked. Um, it was just a tough, tough few moments late in that game that kept Oklahoma State from pulling off a massive upset. And now you look around and you have to wonder when this team can get its head above water. It's why I said last week, and I still think now that Baylor game was key. It was the one. Because um, if you could have gotten that one, then you could have felt like, okay, even if you, you don't do other great things in this tough part of your stretch, stretch you're not going to start 0-4, 0-5, 0-6 in conference play. Now you've got to go to Iowa State. Um, and then you've got Kansas coming to town. I don't know when this team gets its head above water, Carson. And um, last night's game in Lubbock, I didn't expect much. 
the overtime, just heartbreaking loss to Baylor. They had to fly into Lubbock yesterday instead of being able to fly in on Monday because there were 60-mile-per-hour winds on Monday. It was a team that started hot last night and then just looked tired and exhausted. Defense was terrible, gave up 90 points. But, yeah, Iowa State, um, who just won in Hilton Coliseum over Houston on Saturday, and then Kansas comes to Stillwater next Tuesday. Um, yeah, going to be hard-pressed to see them winning either one of those. Yeah, Ken Palm's got him going 0-6 to start Big 12 play based on his metrics. So that's it's a daunting task ahead of them. Um, I want to go back to the Baylor game real quick. Did you see Mike Boynton's quotes about the daily play? No, I did not see the quotes. Tell me what he said. He said uh, his explanation for why um, why Daly was in that position. He said, uh, so Daly usually has a bigger non-guard guarding him. They just switched Small's man. I turned around. I didn't even see it. I saw Small about to be pressured and told Eric to just bring it and run the action. And by the time I turned around, I'll we'll have to watch film to know exactly what happened. They were laying the ball up. Um, why you're turning around and missing like, one of the more critical plays of the game, I don't really follow. I mean, I know you're constantly talking to your assistant coaches. That's a, a big coaching error, in my opinion. And the most inexcusable one for me was not calling timeout on that last huge turnover. I mean, you've got a team chock full of inexperience. And you're, you're letting them just run it out there and just going to go make something happen. Like I know you're probably calling a play, but I think a seasoned head coach and a coach that wins these type of games calls timeout, gets the best possible look you can in that situation because an inexperienced young team is a crutch. A lot of times in the Mike Boynton era, that's an, that's a situation where you have to recognize your, your roster and your team and call timeout. Ensure you put your team in the best position. And he didn't do that. And to me, that's just inexcusable. Um, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be too vociferous on this until I watch this season play out, but these losses in the final minutes of games, there's too big of a sample size. This is coaching and it's poor coaching. And that is another example, Colby, where you absolutely have to call time out there. That was, I would be a hypocrite because I used to call out Travis Ford all the time for his coaching gaffes. That was a major, major gaffe. Yeah, it was. And and I've been as big of a Mike Boynton supporter as anyone. And I have looked for every reason not to criticize the man because I, the man I love. Um, I love everything he has to say. And, and I love what he's trying to build. But it's getting hard. It's getting hard not to criticize. It's getting hard not to look at that game against Baylor on Saturday and say, that is a massive game to get your conference season started off right in, in the midst of what is a brutal stretch in a brutal conference. And some coaching blunders likely cost you that game in overtime, or at least a chance to win that game there in the last 15 seconds. And um, yeah, as far as him being turned around, looking at the bench, I, I don't know. Obviously, that shouldn't happen in that moment, but coaches are constantly turned around on the bench, talking to their assistants, um, getting subs ready to come in. It, it could have just been bad timing. Uh, obviously, I, I just – I don't know how they could have thought that Eric Daly would bring the ball at the court and Baylor wouldn't put any pressure on him. It, it just – it all went bad there at the end. It's all going bad right now for Mike Boynton. And I look at this team and I see a, a group of talented players who aren't winning basketball games. Like, I think Brandon Garrison's a talented player, but he's young. I think Eric Daly's a talented player. Bryce Thompson and Javon Small are talented players. They're not winning any games. And at some point, you do have to look toward the head coach. And I know that he knows. He said it. He said it this season. 
this isn't good enough. It's year seven. People expect results. And that's kind of where we are. This, this isn't good enough. It is year seven. People do expect results. Yes, this conference is loaded. Yes, the conference schedule is a gauntlet to get through. But it's a gauntlet because a lot of other programs have figured it out and have the right guy in place and are doing uh, good things. And, and we're just not seeing that right now with Oklahoma State basketball. So um, I still believe in everything Mike Boynton stands for. But if he doesn't turn this season around and start doing some winning, his days at Oklahoma State are likely numbered. We'll, like you said, we'll see how the season plays out. But, um, yeah, I mean, he said it at, at some point. It's year seven and you have to start winning basketball games. Tell me if this is too much hyperbole. I mean, at this point for me, and look, you have all the caveats of what Mike has dealt with as the head coach at OSU. But you still got to coach and win win games. And his head coaching record is one fifteen and ninety seven. He's won fifty four percent of his basketball games. At this point, I, tell me this is hyperbole. Is is there a coach that could bring in that could could do worse than Mike Boynton at this point? The the job he's put together over seven years. Like, I have a hard time envisioning them making a change and that the results would get worse. Uh, that's. That may sound harsh. That may sound disrespectful, but I got to judge wins and losses. I got to judge this just like I judge Oklahoma State football. And I'm I'm kind of at the end of my rope on you know what what this can be under Mike Boynton. I mean, I 54 percent of your your games is just is flat out not good enough. And I think they could hire someone else that could do a better job. Frankly, uh, yeah, I, it's hard to argue with anything that you're saying there. And and you look at the year that Cade was here. That's obviously the outlier year. I think when we look back, and and obviously he's not fired yet. They could turn this thing around. When we look back on the Mike Boynton era, I think that we're going to see um, a young, inexperienced coach who said all the right things and everybody liked, wasn't dealt the best hand, and just couldn't ever, couldn't ever. It just feels like this program is swimming upstream, man, ever since he took over. Some of it not his fault. Some of it his fault. Like, we're past the NCAA um punishments now which obviously were too harsh and were a disaster and maybe it kept the program from gaining traction whenever Cade got here and and maybe in an alternate universe things go differently without those but that's not the world we live in we we live in the world where this is the hand Mike Boynton was dealt and these are the results and even with the hand he was dealt these results aren't good enough so I'm still rooting for him I'm watching the games I watched last night Um, I mean obviously I didn't watch like the last 10 minutes of of that game because it was over at that point I did keep it up on a side screen, but it lost volume privileges. It, it just, it's not good enough right now. And he knows it. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe he just, at that point in his career, wasn't ready to be a head coach yet. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to start um, lobbing too many macro accusations his way. I, I just know that it's not enough right now for Oklahoma State basketball. And Oklahoma State is fully a football school now. The fan base. I, I mean, I watched that Texas Tech game last night. Carson, they said that classes don't start back up until next week. The student section was packed shoulder to shoulder. They've all got their arms around each other, rocking side to side. Great atmosphere on a Tuesday night at 7 o'clock in Lubbock. Oklahoma State doesn't have that anymore. The fan base um, has lost its passion for basketball, and that's that's sad. It really is. It's sad. Well, and the, the focus has really started to shift to his contract. The Oklahoman writing an article uh, he's under contract through 2028, earning two and a half million dollars per year. The buyout to terminate his contract would call for him to be paid 75% of that remaining contract or just under eight million dollars. On April 1st, the buyout percentage drops to 66%, at which time it would make the buyout 
million dollars. So at this point, at at the end of the season, if the results kind of stay the same, the Oklahoma State's kind of decision to make: do you do you eat six million dollars and pay someone else to coach the team, or do you ride it out with Mike Boynton? I think he's built up a lot of equity in Stillwater, um, but I think that'll be a decision that the higher ups will have to make in terms of: do you want to see Gallagher Iba, you know, empty yet another year? Um, and of course, Mike could turn it around as always. We hope he does because again, I li- I like the guy a lot as well. But uh, it's going to be decision time for where this program wants to go as far as Casey Shrum and Chad Weiberg are concerned. Yeah, I think there's been a little bit of a shift from me this season where um, years past I've said Mike Boynton is, is the guy that I want to turn this thing around, and he's the guy that I think will turn this thing around. And I, I think I'm I'm moving closer to a belief that he is absolutely the guy I want to turn it around, and he's the guy that I want to have success with Oklahoma State basketball but I, I no longer really feel that he necessarily is the guy to get the job done. So um, contracts are a part of that. Money is a part of that. Um, future prospects are a part of that with recruiting. He, he has still done a great job recruiting um, somehow. So, yeah, I, I don't know. There's a lot of questions to be answered over the next three months for Oklahoma State basketball. For sure. Let's get to the toast of the week brought to you by Yingling, America's oldest brewery. Be sure to check out Yingling at your nearest location. Again, I highly recommend the flight and the lager. Things are going uh, off the shelves like crazy. So we appreciate Yingling sponsoring the toast of the week. A lot of directions to go nationally, locally. Where are you going this one? I'm going somewhere I've gone recently. Christmas might have been a few weeks ago, but Rudolph is still in town. (laughs) Mason Rudolph. Baby, he only needed to make one big-time throw last week in a downpour, freezing rain in Baltimore, and he made it to Deontay Johnson for a long touchdown. They get into the playoffs as the seventh seed. They're going to Buffalo this weekend, and it's going to be nasty. It's going to be cold, wind gusts up to 50 miles an hour. Um, It's just going to be a nasty game between the Steelers and the Bills. There's going to be weather all over the NFL playoffs this weekend. for Mason to stick it out, I, I mean, it looked like he was close to the end of the road in his NFL career, and he has now gotten the Steelers three weeks ago, three and a half weeks ago. They were 7-7. Seven and seven. The fan base was starting to get frustrated with Mike Tomlin. There were rumblings that maybe the Pittsburgh Steelers would, would move on from Mike Tomlin and just get a fresh start, move on from Kenny Pickett and get a fresh start. Things were not good in Pittsburgh. And then Mason comes in. He plays three games. They win all three. They look great offensively in the two that weren't played in freezing rain. And now they've assigned Kenny Pickett a clipboard, their their first round pick from a year ago. He's going to sit on the sidelines and watch Mason Rudolph go into Buffalo in, in 40, 50 mile an hour wind gusts and try to beat Josh Allen. So it's a tall task. Don't know if he can do it, but I am just so happy for Mason Rudolph because I think he at, he at least in this opportunity has proven to himself and to GMs around the league that he is worthy of being a quarterback in the NFL starter, backup. He's worthy of being in that league. And that was a question a month ago. Um, could not be happier for Mason Rudolph. Yep, that was fantastic. The the photo opportunity after the game, Justice Hill, Jalen Warren, and all those guys, Tylen Wallace, that was uh, – Mike Gundy had to be smiling ear to ear there. That was uh, pretty cool. And, again, I think Mike Gundy's saying, hey, I keep, you keep saying I can't recruit. Look at all these dudes I got in the NFL. Yeah, no doubt. And by the way, if uh, if Pittsburgh does pull off the upset, which I think is possible in that nasty weather, if Josh Allen wants to try to throw it 40 times, which um, oftentimes he wants to do, 
if Pittsburgh could pull off the upset, then the following week we would get Mason Rudolph and Jalen Warren v. Justice Hill and Tylen Wallace in the divisional round of the AFC playoffs. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, that would be awesome. I'm um, I'm going to pour one out for college football. Mm. We had to suffer through what was a Big Ten title game in the national championship. We had to suffer through the insufferable Jim Harbaugh winning a national championship after cheating his rear end off. He's such a tool. Again, Jim Harbaugh's first six years at Michigan, one bowl win, no Big Ten titles, 0-6 against Ohio State. The past three years, right about the time the cheating started, three straight Big Ten titles, unbeaten against Ohio State, 10-year, $125 million deal for him. 15 and 0 national championship. I just thought this was a loss for the sport. Um, Michigan's I'll give them credit. They're a lot better than I thought, especially on the defensive line. They were dominant. Uh, I thought they got the benefit of some calls in that game, uh, some injuries to Penix and the running back. The running back was just beat up after his first carry. Um, I don't know. I just, it was a disappointing end to this season. And, you know, it's a shame too, because, Michigan hadn't had an outright national title in like 30 something years. I was hoping that would continue. Uh, I believe they're one in 90 was 97, 98. That was a split with Nebraska. 97 Nebraska would have beat the brakes off 97 Michigan. It would have been a bloodbath. It was split, but I thought they're, I thought they're only um, outright title before that was like in the forties. Oh, maybe that was it. Am I wrong about that? I don't know. Um, again, I, didn't love Monday night at all. I was heavily rooting for Washington. Um, thought in the third quarter they might be able to pull it out and make it a game. Michigan was just too much. The The thing is, Michigan was a really good team this year, and they still had an assistant in costume on the Central Michigan sideline stealing signs. Like, they were the national champions, and Jim Harbaugh coached what, like 60% of their games because he was suspended for nearly half the season for multiple different infractions. Like it just, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an odd national champion, right? It doesn't feel like a program worthy of being celebrated. And that's rare for a national champion in college football. Um, so yeah, I just take comfort in the fact that I'm talking everything up to and through that game as college football's warm up, and now we get to a real sport with actual parity and a real way to decide a national champion. So, um, congrats on on winning the last practice hole, Michigan. Yeah, that was. Oh. I also I found this kind of funny too. Um, this guy Steve Berman tweeted out so many memories memories from Jim Harbaugh's 49ers tenure, but my favorite was when he wore like five layers of tucked in crewnecks and khakis at Lambeau. <laughs> I retweeted this and I said, "When Gundy goes to Provo in late November, that's great. That's he so- looks like the Michelin Man. He's got like maybe like ten sweatshirts on with the crew neck, and that's Gundy's adverse to the winter coat too. So I, I could see Mike doing that in Provo. I could see that. I wonder. I'm trying to think back." Niners in in Lambo. Was that the game where Kaepernick ran for like two thirty or something crazy in the cold up there? Yeah, he had he had the Niners rolling. Um, he just he's too much of a a jackass to to maintain a NFL job. That's why I, I don't think he's going to the NFL. Yeah, I think that there's one owner crazy enough to hire him. Um, I shouldn't say that. There's probably several owners. Some of these guys are nut jobs. Uh, but I could see. Mark Davis in Vegas hiring him just for the name, just for the splashy name in Vegas. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Um, but I also want to give honorary toast to Justin Blackman once again, most 
most dominant player I've witnessed. I was too young to to watch Barry Sanders when he played at Oklahoma State. Uh, Blackman was like watching Adrian Peterson play wide receiver. Just complete physical domination. That that Stanford game, chock full of NFL guys in the secondary lining up against him. It, it was man amongst boys. And he simply did not let OSU lose that game. They were down in that game the whole time until they kicked the – the game winner, uh, the game winning field goal. And, um, I just, Justin Blackman is in my opinion, the greatest college wide receiver in history. So shout out to him. And I hope he enjoys getting enshrined with all those names. Yep. We share that opinion. Uh, honorary toast as well. I was watching red zone the other day, whenever it wrapped up and they did their top plays of the year. Any guesses as to what number one was on, uh, red zones, top plays of the year. Was it Tylen? It was Tylen on the punt return. Number one, top play of the year on red zone. Um, as I don't know who voted, maybe Scott Hansen put the list together. I don't know, but that was pretty cool watching that for Tylen. Yeah, that was spectacular. Hopefully he gets some more run in the playoffs at, at receiver. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, no doubt. He was playing a little bit last week. They had some guys sitting. Um, they're pretty healthy in that room right now, so it might be hard for him to get on the field. But um Carson, unless any, any news is breaking right now, I'm sure it'll break in 10 or 15 minutes, but unless anything is breaking right now, I think we covered it all. Yeah, I think we got it. Uh, Colby, thanks for being with me. We'll catch up with you uh, later on. Absolutely great stuff. Appreciate everyone listening. As always, go Pokes.